When you don't draw iron. Simmons, an open three. Air ball. They just don't have any touch. This is Broken Jumper, a weekly NBA podcast hosted by the voice of AM570 LA Sports. Bob Schmidt. Me, Bob Schmidt. What a narcissistic buffoon he is. Like and subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. And now, is this basketball? Broken Jumper. Welcome to Broken Jumper, a weekly NBA podcast hosted by me, Bob Schmidt, the voice of AM570 LA Sports. And you can follow along with us on all of your favorite podcasting platforms, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, on Instagram, on Twitter, at Broken Jumper Pod. To the episode. Since I did the Broken Jumper podcast one week ago today, the Houston Rockets have won six games in a row. I came on this podcast and was criticizing the Rockets for their historically inept start, 1-16, on pace to be one of the worst three, if not the worst team, in the history of NBA basketball. And now they have smashed that by ripping off six consecutive victories, all while Jalen Green is out of the lineup. Now take the numbers out of it. If you want to ruin a rookie's chance at winning Rookie of the Year, going on a 15-game skid, and then the moment you leave, your team ripping off six straight victories, that might do it. Because that is a media-friendly narrative. That may not sound like a lot of games. But there isn't a single team in NBA, NHL, MLB, or NFL history to win six straight games after a losing streak of 15-plus games. That's not a shock for the NFL. Those games are fewer and farther between. But you would think that would be possible in baseball or possibly even in basketball. And yet, it hasn't happened until now. The idea that it's never happened before should reinforce how improbable it was that after losing the number 2 overall draft choice, suddenly, behind the efforts of Christian Wood, who has seen a resurgence, to a form that he has not possessed since Jalen Green has become a Houston Rocket. But with Green out of the lineup, Wood has seen a noticeable uptick in usage and efficiency. Now consider the following. During their 15-game losing streak, Christian Wood got more than 15 shot attempts in a game just three times. In the five games he's played during this six-game win streak, he rolled his ankle minutes into one of them and didn't come back. But in the five games that he played without, He has gone over 15 shot attempts in three of those five games, and his numbers have skyrocketed. Christian Wood has been averaging 23 points, 14 rebounds, and three assists a game. And while counting numbers are impressive, the percentages, 53% from the floor, and he has made 58% of his shots from three-point range. It should be noted that this six-game win streak, for as impressive as it is, because they weren't just losing games. They were getting blown out. They were consistently losing by double digits. They lost to the Memphis Grizzlies by over 30 points, in fact. But during this six-game win streak, they have beat some very bad teams. They've beaten the Thunder twice. They've beaten the Orlando Magic. They've beaten the Pelicans. But it's less about the fact that I don't think anyone's making the, the, the position of, well, this is a contending team. It certainly isn't. But it certainly would cause me to rethink how the development of these younger players should be handled. Now, if your only goal 
is to actively lose games, then by all means, continue to roll out Jalen Green and Kevin Porter Jr. and just play this kind of ISO-heavy ball movement, not really happening very frequently, inefficient basketball. It will continue to pile up losses. But what we've seen without Jalen Green, the Rockets have been forced to turn to steady veteran hands who just play smarter basketball simply due to their experience and their maturity. Look at Garrison Matthews. This is a guy who's bounced around the league, and he's had games here and there when he was with the Wizards. Then he landed in Boston for the preseason. I liked him there. I kind of was surprised that he didn't stick. He seems like the type of efficient, reliable outside threat that would have a place on any team in this modern NBA, but ended up in Houston. And didn't start with many minutes, just getting around 15 a game beginning in mid-November. But over the course of this last six, he's ballooned to over 30 a game. And Garrison Matthews, in this stretch, has averaged 16 points a game. That this is a guy who's largely a three-point sniper. I mean, he took 10 three-point attempts in one of these games. He is making 49% of his three-pointers, 23 of them. The third guy has been Jay Sean Tate. Across the course of the season... 12 points, 7 rebounds, 3 assists. He is an everyman who does, he defends well. He plays bigger than his size at his position. He's always been efficient. But what has happened during this stretch without Jalen Green is that he's been forced to do a lot of facilitating. And over the course of this win streak, he's contributing 16 points a game, 5.5 rebounds a game, nearly 5.5 assists a game. And don't kid yourself, that is directly correlated with the fact that the people Taking these three-point shots now, Garrison Matthews, Christian Wood, Eric Gordon, they're making them. Jalen Green, for all the talent that he has and all the potential that he has, has been an abysmal three-point shooter, shooting an insanely high volume, almost seven a game at less than 30%. Whereas you get a guy like Garrison Matthews and Christian Wood in there, knocking down over 50% of their three-point looks, those assists are going to pile up. But it's really not about the counting stats. It's more about the results the Rockets are seeing from having balance spread across the floor as opposed to just rolling the ball out there and saying, okay, phenoms, do your best. We don't care if we lose as long as you're getting moderately better. There's a happy medium. And that's where I was leading with all of this stuff. I thought it was important contextually to bring up some of the players who are excelling, but it has to make you question Where does this put Steven Silas, the coach of the Rockets, or even their front office, to allow them to run a system out there where they prioritize the development of the youth so much that they almost actively submarine the value of the guys who, in all likelihood, they're going to trade at some point. And I'm not talking about Jay Shantae because he's on a cheap deal, but Christian Wood is a perfect example of a guy who consistently comes up in trade rumors because A, he's talented. B, he's 27, 28 years old, which isn't really in line with the core of the Houston Rockets anymore. And C, they drafted Shen Goon, who is probably their long-term hope to fill the center position. So they could move Wood because they will be able to recoup value and assets for him. In the early part of this season, he looked abysmal playing alongside these two young guards. So perhaps is it better for their hopes of shopping Gordon and Christian Wood that the injury has happened when it's happened to Jalen Green, because maybe this type of showcase at this time of year, as we head towards the trade deadline, is exactly what they need in order to maximize the return they can get on some of these veterans as the contenders begin to go shopping. Now, this may seem 
like I'm smashing Jalen Green. That's really not my intention. This is just meant to be a look at the pure analytics of everything because there is no argument that without Jalen Green, the Houston Rockets are definitely way less fun to watch. But there is also no argument that without Jalen Green in the lineup, the Houston Rockets have been remarkably better. Just look at their points per 100 possessions. With Garrison Matthews in the lineup, the Houston Rockets have vaulted up into the elite ranks of the NBA. With Jalen Green, this was a team that was scoring about 94 points per 100 possessions. Without Jalen Green, they're up in the range of 114 a game, 113.6 without Jalen Green in the lineup. That is a 20 points per 100 possessions difference, which is huge as it comes to that analytic. But secondarily, they've cut down turnovers, they've vastly increased their assists, and they're winning games, which is the ultimate metric. All the things that you wouldn't think would be the case seem to be the case. They're better at scoring without Jalen Green in the lineup. They move the ball better without Jalen Green in the lineup. That is not a shock. Their efficiency is much better. A lot of that can be attributed to the fact that Garrison Matthews is just much more efficient in the looks he's taking. But the turnovers being cut down, turnovers are always hugely impactful to winning. Anybody that watches a team that can't seem to rein in the turnovers knows that. And that's clearly been one of the things that haunts Russell Westbrook. It is also traditionally clearly a problematic situation with younger players. They do tend to turn over the ball at a high volume. But to go from a team that was averaging closer to 18, 19 turnovers a game to cutting it down to 14 or 15, that can be the difference between wins and losses. Now, outside of the numbers, just from a philosophical standpoint, it has to make you wonder, where does this fall with Steven Silas? During that 15-game skid, there was rumors that he might not even make it until Christmas, and now he's ripped off six wins in a row. You have to think that he's safe. But me personally, I don't know if I consider this a positive. He had all of this data in front of him during the 15-game losing streak. I understand working through some problems and thinking things will get better, but I wonder how long it would have taken him to change his philosophy had Jalen Green not gone down with an injury. And now, what happens when Jalen Green comes back? Do we see any modification to the type of offense that he was running with Jalen Green in the lineup. Can you go back to just losing by double-digit points and not find yourself unemployed if you revert to what was a historically bad pace that we saw before this whole injury and six-game winning streak? And I understand that this is going to seem like an indictment on one specific rookie, and it's a guy who I thought would win Rookie of the Year. I don't want to make it... It's disingenuous for me to say that I didn't believe in Jalen Green's potential or that I don't, because I certainly do. But I do think they're putting way too much on his shoulder, and they're not even attempting to run any type of system where they let him grow into a role. They're just throwing him in the deep end. And maybe in the end it won't matter, but I don't know that that's the best thing for Steven Silas, because it's one thing to endure a season where you go 25 and 55. It's another if you finish with less than 15 wins. You may not even make it to the time when Jalen Green has put it all together. I would urge him to look at the results and figure out a way to create some happy medium between these two. Because just letting the two young guards dictate everything in that offense was not working and it will not work. And it's not the best thing for their development either. It's going to create awful habits and I think it's going to slow their progression 
into the type of talent that they could become. But that's about enough Houston Rocket coverage for this episode of Broken Jumper. Couple other subjects I wanted to touch upon. Can we talk about Enos Cantor for a second? I don't put him in the list of my most hated players because in order for that to happen, you have to play more. I have to see you more. So Draymond Green, Jay Crowder, Marcus Morris, definitely up there. Enos Cantor is just sort of like a mild annoyance who I do dislike, but I put him more in the Deshaun Stevenson category. His entire career, he's just tried to capitalize on the notoriety LeBron James has by causing trouble with him. Let's take it back to the beginning. There was a draft where the Knicks took Frank Nilakina, and they took him one spot ahead of Dennis Smith Jr. Now, LeBron James made a comment where he praised Smith Jr. He said he should be a Nick. Now, in that draft, the Knicks picked ahead of the Mavericks and opted to take Frank Nilakina, despite the fact that the Knicks are always craving stars. And there was a lot of people who thought Dennis Smith Jr. would be the steal of the draft. Plus, he was far more well-known in New York due to his play at NC State than Frank Nilakina, who was an international prospect. So a lot of the Knicks fans themselves wanted them to take Smith Jr. But Enos Cantor, a Nick at the time, could not let it go and tweeted in response to LeBron's comments, which, again, weren't directed at Cantor. Nope, we love what we got, thanks, implying that they're fine with Frank Nilakina. Now, I understand finding it annoying LeBron said that, but you don't need to respond to it, mainly just due to the fact that LeBron has a horrible track record when it comes to identifying college talent. Let's not forget, this is the same man who thought Shabazz Napier would be the steal of the draft. Let the man dig his own grave. He's done it plenty of times. He's gone out on a, on a limb on social media and commented on things before really either he knew what was going on or B, just had a horrible take in general. You can let LeBron dig his own grave. But Enos Cantor, right from the moment he arrived in New York, was using his platform to endear himself to Knicks fans and present himself as this lifelong Nick guy, even though he's now with the Celtics, of course. He was with the Trailblazers. He's a journeyman. But this is a recurring theme with Enos Cantor, where you see him using social media in a way that makes you wonder, where is the line between true advocacy or true belief in what he's saying and just pandering to the biggest possible audience he can get for attention? And that's where this is all leading. But continuing on the Cantor-LeBron timeline. LeBron was in Madison Square Garden. He dunks the ball. Frank Nielakina bumps into him, LeBron holds his ground, and Enos Canner runs in and fake tough guys the whole thing, and then says a bunch of stuff after the fact. You ain't coming to my house, here's the direct quote, you ain't coming to my house playing that water bottle flip game again. I don't care who you are. What do you call yourself? King, queen, princess, whatever you are, you know what? We're going to fight, and nobody out there is going to punk us. When somebody says, I don't care who you are, we're going to fight, that just means they lost. Um, because nobody ever phrases it that way after a victory. But certainly he was upset because LeBron's had some huge games in Madison Square Garden. LeBron responded in kind by saying that he was corny. I'm the king, my wife's the queen, and my daughter's the princess, so we got all three covered. You're welcome. Sign the king of New York, and it's LeBron standing on the Knicks logo at Madison Square Garden. Again, if I'm Cantor, I probably don't even respond to that. One, because... You lost the game to the Cavs, so you're never going to win on the scoreboard. And secondly, that was corny as hell from LeBron anyway. Let him dig his own grave. Every time the guy, I love LeBron on the court, but the stuff that he says publicly, a lot of it is corny as hell. 
even when he was trying to rip Kevin Love, and he's like, fit out, don't fit in. Or that was stupid too. And everybody knew it was passive aggressive LeBron, but even the turn of phrase was just terrible. You're winning the war of words, Enos. It's just when you factor in your legacy and general ineptitude at basketball, you're still just not very likable. You want all these people to defend themselves or their views on things, and yet you've never defended anyone in your life. When it comes to beefs between guys who are relevant players like Deshaun Stevenson or Enos Cantor and LeBron James, there's always something to gain for guys like Enos Cantor or Deshaun Stevenson by keeping their name in the news, by just trying to leech off of the attention that a guy like LeBron James gets. And maybe in this case, people give Cantor a pass because what he's trying to gain attention for is an issue a lot of people agree with, which is human rights. The way he does it is still terribly annoying. And it also comes off as so disingenuous because let's not forget what happened after that. LeBron entered free agency and the Knicks were one of the teams, as they always have been, rumored to be after LeBron James. And Enos Cantor said that if he was truly the king of New York, then prove it. Come sign in New York. Just completely lacking any shame whatsoever. A moment ago, you were criticizing the guy, and now you're begging him to come to your team. But worst of the whole thing is the way he did it. He phrased it as if it was a challenge. He was challenging LeBron. You're not man enough to come to New York and prove it. Just pathetic. But that brings us to today. A day after Enos Cantor had a chance to confront LeBron James directly after spending much of the last year and a half or two years slandering James publicly on social media constantly over LeBron James's affiliation with Nike. And he's regularly called out Nike, Phil Knight, and LeBron James, those three entities, all the time. And he's recently taken a swipe at Jeremy Lin. But mainly LeBron and Nike have been the target of this phrase from Enos Cantor. Morals over money. Insinuating, of course, that LeBron James is placing money over morals and should be standing up for the people of Taiwan, which, at face value, I don't disagree with that statement. But I do disagree with the approach that Enos Cantor is taking. And before I get into that, I'm just going to let Mike Breen lay out the situation during the game last night. This is audio from the Lakers-Celtics game. Again, Ennis Cantor has been very active, uh, speaking about his own country, Turkey, and he's suffered consequences from that. And now this is something he's talked about quite a bit. You, you would hope that he would go to LeBron James directly as well and say, hey, listen, I feel this way about this. What do you think? You would hope, Mike. But you see, Mike Breen, Mike Breen recognizes here the hypocrisy that is happening. And don't get me wrong, there is hypocrisy on LeBron's side. He spoke out time and time again on stuff happening domestically, whether it be civil rights or human rights. And then, yes, he is silent about stuff overseas where he has a stake in the game monetarily. But here's the thing. I don't think Cantor's being totally genuine here either. I think a lot of his actions are coming from a place of self-interest. He knows that the best way to get attention for his causes is to link LeBron to it. This is a guy who says you have to stand up for what you believe in and you have to do what's right. And meanwhile, I think most people would argue here, the right thing to do if you've been slandering a man for years publicly and making a name off of him would be to say those things to his face when you had the opportunity. And meanwhile, he's happy to do it from the confines of his apartment or his home, wherever he lives, when he's thousands of miles away from China or thousands of miles away from Turkey or thousands of miles away from LeBron James, 
But again, when presented with the opportunity to actually try to appeal to LeBron directly and get him to join your side on this issue, he did nothing. The question then becomes why? Why would you not be comfortable saying these things to his face unless either A, you don't truly believe them, or B, you're using LeBron in this situation to just further your own interests. And maybe your interests are altruistic. Maybe your interests are bettering other people's human rights situations in other countries. And in that case, the ends justifies the means. But I think most people simply don't respect somebody who comes at it in that way. Because what's the worst thing that happens in a conversation with LeBron? He disagrees with you. He rebukes you. You're two grown men. You shouldn't care. If you don't agree on an issue, you clearly don't in this case, or he calls you out for your general kind of online cowardice. But if you feel comfortable enough bringing his name up again and again and again in interviews on social media publicly, you should be fine with doing it to his face. And last night, he didn't even attempt to have a conversation with him. Here's LeBron from the postgame last night. LeBron, do you have any reaction to um, Ennis Cantor using... Your likeness on his shoes in his uh, advocacy for human rights? Um, no, I think if you know me, I don't really give too many people my energy. Um, you know, and um, he's definitely not someone I will give my energy to. Um, you know, trying to use my name to create, you know, an opportunity for himself. Um, um, definitely won't uh, comment too much on that, um, if any. And that, that'll be where I lay that at. Um, you know, he's always. You know, kind of had a you know a word or two to say you know in my direction um you know and as a man you know if you got really if you got an issue with somebody you really come up to him he had his opportunity tonight i seen him in the hallway he walked right by me so so for those keeping score at home that's two people now who have called enos Cantor a bitch both mike brain and now lebron james himself just for good measure let's triple it up doris burke with the most savage takedown of all three, in my opinion. And oh, by the way, I don't know how much business the United States does in terms of billions of dollars and multiple corporations, not to mention the other NBA players who have relationships with Nike, AD, KD, Kyrie, you name it. You single out one guy. You tell him, Doris. See, Enos. Everybody thinks you're a bitch. And it's not about your views. Again, I want to reiterate that. I kind of agree with you as far as the human rights thing. I don't think you're ever going to win in a battle against capitalism and self-interest. Get used to it. That's the world we live in. But it's the way that you approach it. It's the same reason I have zero respect for PETA. Because regardless of my feelings about animals, the way they choose to prioritize getting attention for themselves over maintaining the goodwill of the people who they hope to win over, well, that's a, a method I just simply don't agree with. Years ago, Vic the Brick, who anyone who listens to AM570 LA Sports knows Vic, he was on a billboard here in LA where he was wearing a fur hat, and Peter called in to the station and was criticizing Vic, slandering him as a human being, which I cannot stand. Anyone who knows Vic knows he's a good man, and if you don't like that he wore fur, Sure, you don't have to like that. But to listen to people who have never met him, who don't know him, who have only seen an image of him, tell me what a terrible human being he was. I found it disgusting. But then these are the same people who would 
go into cafeterias at schools and show children videos about animals being slaughtered because they didn't believe in it. So the best way to get the kids on their side was to show them graphic images of animals being slaughtered without their parents' consent. See, that type of approach to things is one where regardless of what your message is, your tactics in spreading that message lose my respect. And I almost just involuntarily push back instinctively because I don't respect the person, regardless of what the message is. And that's where we are with Enos Cantor today. So I know this has been a long rant about why Enos Cantor is garbage. And uh, yet another time where I fall on the side of LeBron James. Shocking, isn't it? I know. One other thing I wanted to touch on in this week's episode of Broken Jumper, and that would be the upcoming trade season. Stuff starting to creep out. The Indiana Pacers struggling, finding themselves outside the playoff picture. Shams has tweeted that they will consider shopping Karis LeVert, Miles Turner, Sabonis. Maybe all of them, maybe two of the three of them. Basically, they're ready for a teardown, and they're using their veteran, excellent players, minimal years left on their deal, to try to bring in, I assume, draft picks, young talent, just something that can allow them to shed some salaries, load up on some assets for the future, and try this thing again. Which begs the question, who's going to go after who? I think the most desirable of those assets, in order, I think it goes this way. And obviously, this is contingent on team. But there would be a lot of interest for Sabonis, of course, because he's an excellent player. He also has a pretty reasonable contract at less than $20 million a season, and it extends all the way until the end of the 2023-24 season. Turner and Lavert. after that, it's really kind of, well, do you need a guard more or do you need a center? Because they're both roughly around the same age. Turner's 25, Lavert's 27, and they both expire at the same time, which is following next season, and their contracts are almost identical, $18 million a year for the next two years. Now, if you're a team like the Lakers, who's looking for interior help, Miles Turner would probably become the priority there. You don't necessarily need the facilitation of a guy like Sabonis when you already have LeBron and Russell Westbrook on the roster, and defensively, an elite rim protector, also very young. This is my frustration. The reality is this, as it relates to Lakers fans who are now scheming as far as ways to get Miles Turner. Miles Turner is unattainable given the current assets that the Lakers have. They have given up too many draft picks in their past deals. They have taken on too huge of salaries to the point where really the only movable pieces they have that are at all attractive, and I should say I'm taking LeBron, AD, and Russell out of this because LeBron and AD, you're not trading, and Westbrook, nobody's taking that money and giving you a better asset in return. It's a huge deal. He's old. Nobody trying to rebuild is saying, hey, how can I get Russell Westbrook? It's just not a realistic place for a team like the Pacers who have a specific agenda here. So if they're going to get Miles Turner for the Lakers to obtain him, they'd have to send back draft picks and young assets, and they don't have much of anything in that way. They don't even have control over all their future draft picks. And beyond that, their young assets are two guys, more or less, right now. Halen Horton Tucker and Kendrick Nunn. And neither of them are on long-term deals. Halen Horton Tucker will be an unrestricted free agent in a year and a half. They would basically have one season of cost-controlled Taylor Horton Tucker after this year 
before they had to pay him. So even if he succeeds in Indiana in a higher usage role as a more focal point of a rebuilding team, they just have to pay him anyway. He's not that controllable of an asset like a guy on a rookie contract who's approaching restricted free agency. Hendrick Nunn, meanwhile, has a player option next year, so he could just walk away at the end of this season. And the money he's making, $5 million, if he has any type of good second half of the year, he can probably get more than that on the open market. The Pacers would be better off seeking out a young guy who's coming up on a deal who people don't know if they want to pay or commit a ton of money to. Your guys like your John Collins before last year, who people weren't sure if he was going to stick in Atlanta, or your Colin Sexton's now, or your DeAndre Ayton's now. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying Ayton would get moved anywhere. That's not going to happen. But the Pacers need to bring back somebody on a rookie deal that they would have control over if they chose to for the next three to seven years. Miles Turner, he is definitely not going to end up with the Lakers because Taylor Horton Tucker and Kendrick Nunn are not young enough and they're not good enough to be the focal point of a deal like that. And, and I'm not saying that if they had no other options, they wouldn't do it. But there are a lot of better offers that could be put together. Just the Warriors, for example. They could put together a deal to try to bring in Miles Turner if they wanted a true elite defensive center to put alongside an already contending core, and they would have more motivation and far more assets. Kuminga, Moody, Wiseman, draft picks, their own first-round draft pick. They could package any number of those things, a portion of them, one of them. They all may be better. I mean, what would you want right now as an NBA fan? Taylor Horton Tucker, one year away from unrestricted free agency, one and a half seasons away from unrestricted free agency, or James Wiseman, just straight up. Even if you don't know what Wiseman's going to become. The fact is, you have his rookie salary and you have control for three to seven more years, depending on if you pick up his option, qualifying offer, all those things. There's a, a lot more time on the clock for you to have a guy throughout an entire rebuild than to go all in on a guy like Taylor Horton Tucker as the focal point, it's not going to happen. The other team we should expect to see in trade rumors consistently through Christmas here is going to be the Portland Trailblazers because with Shams breaking the news about C.J. McCollum having a collapsed lung, it looks like he's set to miss more time. Damian Lillard's still out of lineup, although there are rumors he could be back as early as this weekend. So as it sits now, you have a team that went all in to try to be competitive and keep Damian Lillard happy. This summer, they traded for Larry Nance Jr. They gave up a first-round pick to do that. They're barely using Larry Nance Jr. The irony of that situation is that when Larry Nance Jr. left, both the Cavs and Larry Nance Jr. came out and said that, well, we wanted to go different ways. I wanted to be a part of a contender. They agreed to send me to Portland, and you know they're prioritizing youth. Meanwhile, the Cavaliers look a hell of a lot closer to contending than the Trailblazers do at this point. Now, certainly, Lillard comes back, and people get healthy. The Blazers could be a good team, but they're in a tough conference. They're kind of old and banged up at the moment. C.J. McCollum is having a bad season by his standards. He seems to have regressed, and now he's dealing with these health issues. And they have tough decisions to make because both Robert Covington and Yusuf Nurkic, they're on expiring deals. And they're in that range of money where they could be acquired by a lot of contenders fairly easily. They make 12 and $13 million, respectively. For Nurkic, is 12. Covington, it's 13. And they have a couple other guys who are movable. 
I mean, Damian Lillard's deal is gigantic, but he's clearly a superstar. Somebody would figure that out. CJ McCollum is not going to be easy to move if he's not healthy and if he's if he can't return to form somewhat because that's a shooting guard on the wrong side of 30 who is making over $30 million a year for the next three seasons. That's a lot of money to commit to a guy who's more or less a one-way player. He's mostly known for his offense. He's not the guy that you plug in who is just going to assure you of being a defensive two guard. So do you get ahead of this and ship Covington and ship Nurkic and maybe even move Nance? You could dump all of those guys, but if you do that, you're blowing the whole thing up. So I don't know the order they would do it in because in a way, the moment you trade Covington and Nurkic or or Nance Jr., it's more or less a signal that Lillard is getting moved no matter what. And then who knows what gets offered. I think in any situation where the Blazers make a trade, it's got to be one of Lillard or McCollum who gets moved first because that's sending the signal to everyone that it's then a buyer's market. And I think they're going to know that eventually – you'll agree to part with those things before you take nothing for them. So I'm not sure how the rest of this season will play out for them, but I am curious to see where Nurkic lands and Covington lands. I was listening to No Dunks, and they talked about a speculative deal where Nurkic would wind up with the Hornets in some sort of situation where they bring back Plumley, perhaps Booknight, who is a rookie who has not gotten any floor time with the Hornets. It's funny, with LaMelo down and with Terry Rozier down with COVID protocols, it's been Ubre who has filled almost all of the offensive usage. If he hasn't been able to crack the lineup there in Charlotte yet, it's not looking good for his rest of this season outlook, which is very surprising because more and more we're seeing, I mean, if you look at the top picks in the draft this year, we talked earlier on the show about how basically Jalen Green has just been made a primary option before he's ready for it, but you've got Mobley playing a huge role where he's regularly logging over 35 minutes a night. Suggs. When healthy, certainly will be playing huge minutes. You've got Scotty Barnes, who's a starter with the Toronto Raptors already. Meanwhile, Book Knight, who was an early pick, nothing for him. That's kind of the first point where we're seeing a drop-off because Giddy is getting showcased in Oklahoma City as well. Anyway, just wanted to touch on some of those trade rumors. I'll get into those in more depth next week and pitch some of my own insane hypothetical trades that may or may not make any sense, but I'll at least argue in their favor, as ridiculous as they may be. Because so far, most of the things that I have predicted or projected to happen are failing this season. Jalen Green letting me down. Houston Rockets, I say they're the worst team in the history of basketball. Potentially last week, they go on a six-game winning streak. Jaron Jackson Jr. for most improved player. Well, now John Morant's out of the lineup and Desmond Bain is the star. I fully expect by next week, James Booknight will have a 50-point game under his belt and I will come on and just blow my brains out right before Christmas. Happy holidays, you sons of bitches. Come back next time to Broken Jumper. That's it. No more Broken Jumper. No. No. Download past episodes you missed and like and subscribe anywhere you listen to podcasts. Go to the iHeartRadio app. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Broken Jumper. And tune in weekly for more NBA coverage.